Is that person sitting outside in the car looking through your window from the ETS? <laughs> yeah, sleep with one eye open, yeah, Dan. Just, just <laughs> kind of creepy sitting. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we find out how simply pre-printing your manuscript could accelerate the pace of scientific discovery. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 83. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Thanksgiving week, Dan. Turkey day. Are you ready? Gobble, gobble. (laughs) Have you started basting your your bird yet? I'm just basting myself this year, (laughs) just getting ready. I learned about, uh, this week I learned about the phrase meat sweats, where if you eat a lot of meat, you get sweaty. I was trying to inquire about the scientific basis of this. I don't know. Has that ever happened to you? That has never happened to me, but people were discussing it. I was like, that can't be a real physiological response. So this happened to me one time. I I was in a different city for a friend's bachelor party. And so one of the things we did for dinner was we went to one of those Brazilian steakhouse restaurants. Where they slice it off of the, yeah. Yeah, they walk around with big hunks of, of meat carcass on, on swords. And so have you been to one of these, Dan? I have not. Yeah, so, so the way this works is every, every person gets a little, a little coaster and there's a red side and a green side. And if it's flipped over on the green side, that says more meat. Bring, keep bringing the meat. <laughs> Please bring a sword of meat. Yeah. And then when you're, when you're done, you know, when you need a break or you're, you're all full, you flip to the red side and that's a signal, no more meat. Okay. This is starting to sound like Roman times. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, so anyway, uh, going into this, of course, group of guys, we decided that uh, there'd be a little competition to see. You glued somebody's chip <laughs> down with, her, with the green side up. They're still there as far as Please stop bringing meat. <laughs> it's sort of like clockwork orange, but with meat. Yeah. Uh, no, but what we did was we, we had a little competition for who nobody wanted to be the first person to, to give in. So, you know, we're eating the meat, you know, we're gorging ourselves. And then all of a sudden... At once, there was just this complete break in conversation and this huge sigh, and we all kind of looked at each other and realized that we started sweating. Oh, so Almost you think it's a real thing? It happened to me. Oh, wow. It, it, that had never happened to me before or since, but at that moment, it happened to me. Yeah, I, there was some explanation that there was a protein-based thermogenesis based on hydrochloric acid or something like that. I didn't quite believe it, but now I have uh, N equals one. You've had this experience. I have, uh, but no no meat here in the studio. Speaking of Turkey Day, yeah. <laughs> we do have a beer along with the theme of Thanksgiving. So Dan, our listeners who tuned in last week heard us visit Mystery Brewing where we had the, uh, the beer that was brewed with whole pumpkin pies and sadly... Uh, was lacking in pumpkin pie flavor. Yeah, it, it didn't hit that mark for you, for sure. So I was so disappointed, Dan, I thought we could try again. So what I have this week is this is the Deep River Brewing Company from Johnston County, North Carolina. This is the Pumpkin Pie Porter. Okay, so um, I've, I've given this a little bit of a sample here. Nice, beautiful, dark porter color. We've still got some of the, the foam on top that is is residing there. My first impression so i I definitely got the pumpkin out of it the pumpkin spices but there's also a sourness to it which i didn't expect from a porter it's got the bitterness of the porter but i also got a little bit of sourness yeah i was wondering if that was coming from the pumpkin Um, i'll read this one was was made a little differently than the drum ghoul that was that we sampled last week so from the back of the can this says our pumpkin pie porter won't stick to your ribs like grandma's cooking but it sure packs a fistful of flavor we pack over seven pounds of pumpkin per barrel into this beer along with our perfect blend of pumpkin pie spices seven pounds of pumpkin per barrel and spices i think you can definitely taste it here yeah, now, do you think you're tasting the pumpkin or the spices? Because those are not the same thing. I think I'm getting the spices on the front end, but I do agree there's that tanginess that I'm attributing to the way that the pumpkin pulp is fermenting. Yeah, I think that's totally possible. I like their, this is uh, Deep River's catchphrase on the can here. It says, Johnston County's first legal brewery, and they put that in in kind of <laughs> italics. Like, yeah, there was probably a lot of brewing going on in Johnston County for a long time, just <laughs> not legally. That is true. Well, I hope you enjoy this pumpkin pie porter. All right, Dan, I have an update on one of my favorite topics. Okay. Is the, it board games? It's the GRE. Oh, that's one of your least favorite <laughs> Or more topics, specifically, yeah. the uh, elimination of the GRE. So long-time listeners will know that this is a topic we've covered off and on and even published some research on this topic. 
So one thing that I was interested in was after the University of Michigan very publicly announced that they were dropping the GRE in their biomedical sciences program, I was curious whether there were any other programs out there that had dropped the GRE, because this is a conversation that we are having at our university, and I just got back from a conference, and I know lots of other universities are are having these same discussions for their graduate programs. Yeah, the question is, is Michigan a unicorn, or is it a horse? Yeah, that's right. So I put out a call on Twitter, because that's what you do these days, and asked if anyone else knew of any programs that had dropped the GRE. And long story short, Dan, I have now generated a list of 23 biological or biomedical PhD programs that have dropped the PhD requirement. And do you think that's all recent? Is it within the last few years? Uh, From what I can tell, there are a few, maybe two or three, that have not had the GRE for a while, but the rest seem to be within the last year or two. So there there may be this groundswell, this change in how graduate admissions work. Yeah, I think so. And beyond the ones that have already dropped it, uh, I spoke with a handful of additional people who plan to drop it next year. But if anybody's interested in that list, uh, maybe some of our listeners are applying to graduate school. <laughs> yeah, where, where do you not have to spend 200 or $300? Yeah, so we will post a link to that in the show notes. Or if you go to my personal Twitter, uh, that's at JD Hall PhD, uh, it's pinned to the top there. So, and, and also importantly, I plan to maintain this list as time goes by. So if any of our listeners, if you know of changes at your own graduate institution, uh, as far as eliminating the GRE, let me know, because I'd love to add your university to the list. Um, Is that person sitting outside in the car looking through your window from the ETS? (laughs) I can't sleep with one eye open, Dan. Just just (laughs) kind of creepy sitting out there, but okay. Actually, this is a little bit of an aside, but related just for anyone who is worried about ETS possibly going under due to uh, <laughs> due to these changes. No one else does this, but I happen to follow ETS and, and standardized testing in general. It turns out they have been in a battle with the makers of the LSAT exam for, for law school trying to uh, basically overtake the LSAT as the law school entrance exam. And it turns out in a number of programs, they've dropped the LSAT and they've taken up the GRE, and the LSAT makers have been publicly denigrating ETS, and then ETS has been firing back. It's actually kind of this really funny battle from Over standardized test makers. Tests, but, you know, yeah. I imagine it's a multi-million dollar thing, you know, who, who gets uh, law school entrance exams. There's a lot of money to be had there. We had to get into that business. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. All right, Dan, are you ready for some science in the news? Let's hear it. All right, Dan, this is a topic that we've received some tweets and emails about, and I'm sure many of our listeners have have heard about this in the news, at least if they're in the United States. That is the news about some potential changes to the United States tax code that could impact graduate students. Can you insert a, like a horror movie scream sound right here? Ah! So the U.S. House of Representatives drafted some changes to the United States tax law that would make some major changes to certain tax rates and alter some longstanding tax loopholes. And one of these changes could directly impact graduate students and not in a good way. At least one of these changes, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. There are others that will uh, indirectly impact you. But but here's the big one. So Dan, you know that one important feature of PhD training, especially in the sciences, is that your tuition is typically paid by the program or the individual lab that you're working in, in addition to being paid an annual stipend. It's the only way that this system can work. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It wouldn't make sense to pay grad students a stipend. Of- Ooh, let me go into debt so that I can continue to make less than the uh, normal minimum wage as a postdoc. Yeah, yeah. Well, well the reason that, that graduate programs do this is unlike classroom-like programs, science PhDs work more like um, employees in a lot of ways. So most of what you're doing as a grad student is you're generating research that leads to grant funding and discoveries. So enter this potential new tax law. So this Republican-sponsored bill contains a provision that would tax tuition waivers provided to employees of colleges, including graduate students. So in another way, as written, it would count tuition paid on behalf of the graduate student as taxable income. But it's tuition. I guess I guess you're, it's, it's almost as if they're paying you to pay your own tuition. That would that would be how this this law would interpret it. So, oh no, so that's so, a lot of money. That is a lot of money. So so in real numbers, you know, Dan, we could imagine uh, back when we were graduate students and we started. Uh, and granted, 
tuition is or tuition and stipends have gone up. Um, but we what we started out making around twenty thousand dollars, and our annual tuition would have been what probably twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah, I don't actually know because we never paid it. <laughs> Let, let's just say let's just say twenty five thousand dollars for the year. So instead of us paying income tax on that. $20,000, we would now pay income tax on $45,000. But we'd only be paying it out of the $20,000. That's exactly right. So in real numbers, this really, depending on the school that you go to and the cost of tuition, this could increase the amount of taxes owed by graduate students in the thousands of dollars, up to five to 9000 additional dollars in taxes a year. Well, Josh, I'm not too concerned because I know the grad student lobby is a very powerful thing. <laughs> Right, they're gonna they're gonna get what they need. You know, the science community in general, and specifically if you pare that down to graduate students, we're a pretty busy bunch, right? We're we're just trying to figure out all of life's mysteries and 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 get through our training and, and all this. Um, but we you know we talked a little bit about the science march when that was going on back in the spring, and I think scientists are at least a little more politically aware now. So maybe it's a good thing the science march primed us a little bit. I imagine most of our students hopefully have heard about this because this has attracted some attention. In fact, even national publications, the New York Times even had an article about how this specifically would impact graduate students. According to the College and University Professional Association, estimated 145,000 graduate students and 60% of those are, are in science or technology degrees. So there are a lot of people that this is going to, to affect. And you know, I wasn't, I wasn't even going to talk about this right now when people first reached out to us. But this bill did actually pass the House this week. So it's one step closer to becoming law. However, and if there's some good news, it still has to get through the Senate, and the Senate has their own tax plan that does not include this provision for for graduate tuition. So yeah, it's really hard to talk about this as you know, what do grad students do about it? I think what you do about it is you call your Congress people and tell them that your life is going to be affected by this. And you are, you're not upper middle class. You're not the wealthy. Where your earnings sit, I think you, you fit solidly in the realm where they should care that they're increasing your tax rate. So um, that's what you can do. And then our hope is that this does not get through in its current form. I, I don't know what would have to change in the university. The university would have to start increasing stipends to offset that cost. And I don't know if they could afford it. It's hard to say. This would certainly have some fundamental changes to to graduate education. So I think what you said is true, Dan. There are some things that you can do. You can call your senators. That's the first thing you can do. And I know for me, Dan, you know, you'll hear people say, call your congresspeople. And a big barrier for me doing that is not being able to look up the phone number, but it's knowing what the heck to say when I make that phone call. Yeah. So, so we have you covered here. So the National Association of Graduate Professional Students has actually written a script that you can use to guide that conversation when you place that call. And so what we will do is we'll provide a link to that script in the show notes, as well as a link for how to find your senators. So keep in mind, the Senate, they will be voting on their own bill making changes to their bill sometime after the Thanksgiving holiday. So now is a great time to call. If you can't remember or don't want to go look for those links in our show notes, PhD Comics just yesterday put out a new comic explaining this issue, and they have links to both of those sites at the bottom of, of that comic. So really, seriously, call your senators if you've never done it before. This will be great practice for being socially engaged in things that are going on. And you know, another thing you can mention, philosophically, one thing that conservative politicians want to do is decrease the tax burden on citizens. And as graduate students, we are citizens and we are not high income earners. And, and this tax bill would overnight drastically increase our tax burden. So that's something you can, you can say. And it really does work. So Republican congressmen and women from California and New York in the House actually voted against this tax law because some of the changes would specifically raise taxes on a lot of their constituents and their constituents called. And that actually led those Republican House members to vote against it. So please, if you don't want your taxes to go up by five to $10,000, make that call. Josh, I think we've got a topic. We do, Dan. I'm really excited about, about this interview. So I had the, the privilege and opportunity to talk to Dr. Jessica Polka a few weeks ago when she was visiting our institution. And, and Jessica is director of an organization called 
ASAP Bio, and that's ASAP that stands for Accelerating Science and Publication in Biology. And, and their tagline is that ASAP Bio is a scientist-driven initiative to promote the productive use of preprints in the life sciences. Yeah, no, I have to jump in here. You said, oh, we need to talk about preprints. It's a really hot topic. And I was like, what on earth? It, well, first of all, what is a preprint? And second of all, how could this possibly be interesting in any way, shape, or form? Is it about, you know, yeah, I, you, I just didn't know. You, no you, were not, you were not sold on this topic I was not at sold. face value. But I have listened to the interview, and I am now on fire about it. So I think the best thing we could do is probably get right into it and let her tell us what preprints are and why I'm now so excited about them. I'm Jessica Polka, director of ASAP Bio which is a scientist-driven project to promote the productive use of preprints in life sciences. So why don't you just tell me a little bit about what are preprints? Like yeah. just to start at the beginning, what are preprints and why are you promoting their use? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. So preprints are simply manuscripts posted online prior to the completion of journal organized peer review. So in many cases, they just be the version of your manuscript that you'd be submitting to a journal. But you could also submit a preprint before submitting a journal. Uh, you could also post a preprint, you know, perhaps later in that review process. But the, the goal really is just to share with the scientific community the work that you've done, get additional feedback on it, gain some more exposure. In many cases, months or maybe even a year or more ahead of the time that it would take to appear in a, in a peer review journal. Now, mm -hmm. peer review is a really important process. The curation role that journals play is valuable, um, but we see preprints as a really compelling way to complement that communication process. And I should also note that they've been used for about a quarter of a century um, in physics and math, computer science, um, in areas like social science and economics as well. The concept is really not anything new, it's just that we haven't actually um, picked it up uh, recently in the life sciences community. Although, in the 1960s, the NIH did have these things called information exchange groups, which were basically physical preprint servers. So we have this history in life sciences um, of exchanging material, and that's really borne out, too, in the fact that we're going to conferences regularly and giving posters, giving talks with unpeer-reviewed data, but we just don't have a culture of sharing the manuscripts with one another. I guess the additional benefit of sharing manuscripts is that they're available to everyone in the world. You don't just have to go to a meeting, uh, which is you know expensive, exclusive. It provides the same opportunity for scientists everywhere to hear about the latest research and, and comment on it. That brings up two questions. The first one is, with these preprints, is there any concern then, if I'm sharing my pre-published manuscript, is there any concern about being scooped? <laughs> Absolutely. I think being scooped is, fear of being scooped is really the biggest concern that I typically hear from early career researchers. The idea is you're going to be posting your manuscript somewhere, all of your data will be there, uh, you know, the notion is that you know your competitor um, could benefit from the information there and publish use it to advance their own science without acknowledging you. Well, I guess the the fear is that that this is based on. I think we already have lots of experiences or lots of opportunities for scooping to occur in the life sciences when we give a poster, when we give a talk, um, when we submit a manuscript for review or a grant application. Um, in fact, it, those opportunities may be even more dangerous because there's no permanent, publicly accessible record of the work. It's, I think it's much easier to attribute or to take work from a poster where there's not going to be a permanent record of what you showed than it is to, to take work um, from uh, a preprint without attribution. So, you know, from, from that perspective, I think we're already kind of dealing with that vulnerability. But in, in some ways, the, the, I think the attention that preprints have, the attention paid to preprints, um, is going to be sort of inversely proportional to the danger of scooping, if that makes sense. So the more people who are looking at preprints and are aware of preprints, I think the harder it will be for someone to scoop mm -hmm. you by using information from a preprint. Yeah, and I guess by the, by the time that you have actually posted a preprint, I mean, you already have your work to the point that you've written up an entire manuscript. Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, it's not to say that it can't get tied up in the peer review process for a very long time. But, yeah, still, right. It well, is that happens complete. anyway, right? Exactly. I mean, I've, yeah. I've seen some people post their, their publications and the date between first submitted and publication. In some cases, it could be like a year. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Some of the more extreme cases, or even more. And that's not counting the times it was rejected from that or other journals. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a huge amount of kind of like dark matter here that we just aren't seeing in terms of the time spent under, you know, when manuscripts get rejected or if you have to resubmit as a new submission to that journal, the clock kind of starts all over again. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it can be a very long process. Okay, well, that all sounds really good. <laughs> But I'm assuming there are two sides oh, to yeah. the argument. What would be arguments against using preprints, or at least making preprints yeah. available? So I think the first concern, and we've already talked about a little bit, is this idea of getting scooped. Um, but the second concern, which I think is a little bit more kind of existential, is what's going to happen to the quality of the literature if we allow researchers to post work without peer review? Um, the argument being that we're going to... Um, effectively that this is going to devolve into people just posting their brief ideas or work that does not actually have solid evidence to back it up to kind of stake a claim on something. Or they'll be just posting preprints just to make it look like they're being productive when in fact the preprints are not very substantive. Uh, Yeah, the concern is basically that without peer review we're just going to degenerate into, you know, noise and and chaos. I guess the first comment that I would make is that we already share tons of work without peer review, again, at meetings, but, you know, we don't just have, (laughs) give posters and talks just to give posters and talks. People are looking at what we're doing, associating our names with the work. There's a little bit of, I think, reputational feedback that's going to come into play. Um, in the case of preprints. The other concern is, is it really really that bad to be sharing work that is not fully complete? Is it that bad for our community to put out a hypothesis or a single figure? If that work can help other researchers move their ideas forward, if that work can be attributed properly to the people who came up with it, it, in fact, I think reducing, you could make an argument, and I, I do personally believe this, that by reducing the time to the release of data or information or ideas of any kind, in some ways reducing kind of the minimal publishable unit, we could accelerate science overall by making that work available faster and allowing more people to have access to it and, and remixing it. So I'm not sure that making the unit of publication smaller um, is going to be necessarily bad, but there is also a a, a concern here that people will be posting unsubstantiated claims. My my hope is that commenting systems on preprints, which is built into BioArchive, and you know, there's li- often some lively discussion of preprints on social media. You know, I think we need more of it because you could imagine that with a robust discussion system, we could um, be identifying and celebrating the work that's really robust, while perhaps asking for more clarification on the work that's not. Yeah, so as you're, as you're saying that, you know, one thing that, that makes me think about, it's almost ironic to me that there is this culture that's being built on the preprint side where commenting on work is, is, hap- is very active. There's a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion about the science that's being posted there. On the flip side, I know there are journals, especially open access journals, who have tried to establish that or at least prime that pump like, Plus one, for example, I'm sure there are others where, hey, you know, once it's published, that's not the end, but that's the beginning of the discussion. We're providing tools where you can comment on the work. (laughs) And I know I've published in those journals, and there are no comments. (laughs) And that could just be my work super boring. No. But looking around, no one's really taking advantage of that in the post-peer-reviewed published world. And that seems a little unfortunate. I totally agree. Why are we having all these conversations over here in the preprint world? But yet we're still treating peer review and publication as if, well, that's set in stone now. That's the end of the discussion. What do you think about that? Well, I I feel like the entire model that we are using for our published papers is based off of like 18th century technology. The idea that there is a version of record, a final version, is based in the concept of paper distribution systems, of printing and then sending out books that can't change. 
But now we have the capability to update manuscripts. And in fact, we're doing this now, but with by either retracting or correcting manuscripts or adding core agenda or whatever you may want to call them. I, there is a, a movement from paper from COPE, the Committee on Publication Ethics, about renaming and kind of destigmatizing some of these post-publication items in order to help authors correct the record or improve the record more easily and without that stigma. So I, I think that in, if we were really to redesign the publication system now, given the technology that we have, I don't think that we would necessarily have a static paper but it could be a paper that could be updated over time. And in much the same way that we, that in order to do this effectively, we need to have a version control system. So if I'm citing a version of a paper, that version needs to be persistent forever. And it has to be, I have to be able to unambiguously go back to it and refer to it. And that's exactly what preprints offer. You can upload different versions of your paper and change it after additional feedback but the previous versions are still um, archived and available there. So I would love for that paradigm to be extended to peer-reviewed manuscripts um, as well. So that's, that's actually really interesting. Maybe people use it this way, but in some ways, as scientists and researchers are uploading preprints and these discussions are having, and then based on the, are being had, and then based on these discussions, new versions are being uploaded, it's kind of like peer review is improving these manuscripts before the peer review process even starts. Wouldn't that lead to better manuscripts and better science being published? Oh, I hope so. I mean, I think that would be kind of like the dream. I think one challenge now is that the the number of preprints, the fraction of preprints that actually receive comments, public comments, is fairly small. Mm-hmm. So I think um, as of early 2016, the percentage of bioarchive preprints receiving comments was only about 10%. And, you know, I think we are don't really have a culture of commenting publicly. That's something that I think it would be great to address. One way of doing that would be to encourage preprint journal clubs, which um, is something that various ASAP Bio ambassadors, who are basically these awesome volunteers at different institutions. Um, for example, there's two uh, run by Sam and Daniela. Um, a, a, two ambassadors are working on a, a project called Pre-Review, which is essentially a, a platform for posting journal club evaluations of papers. Prachi Avasti is a, is a faculty member um, in Kansas who has used preprints for her journal club course. I think that in an ideal world, you would imagine that researchers could be motivated to comment on preprints and perhaps this could either either strengthen manuscripts before they're ever submitted to a journal or you know even help identify papers that are problematic before they come out into the public view. So you can imagine the arsenic DNA paper, if that had been published as a preprint, um, you know, could those problems have been identified? early on. And, um, you know, there are certain p- types of papers that I think come under a lot of public scrutiny almost immediately. And I think especially for those type of papers, it would be great to kind of have that discussion uh, before uh, before coming to something that we want to call <laughs> the final published version. But I do want to just come back to this point a little bit you made about commenting and commenting on the final published version and how that hasn't really taken off very much. I think that there's a certain sense that this, if the work is finished and it's unlikely that the authors are going to return and edit and improve it, that there's very little reason to comment except to possibly call out potential (laughs) problems with the paper that might warrant retraction. So I think that has a really chilling effect on the volume and the tone of commentary on published papers. But my hope is that since preprints are not yet finished, there's a hope of constructively contributing that the tone might be different for that conversation. Yeah, and wouldn't it be great if even the way scientific publications were organized was was such that if I'm a researcher and I publish my work on topic A, and then we follow up on topic A, which we probably would, that somehow you, as somebody who maybe is interested in, in my topic, you read the first paper, and there's a way, oh, look, I can click right here because it says there's been an update to mm. this story, mm-hmm. and somehow those were linked together, and not, oh, well, I have to know... A, completely different search term to find this, you know, like if somehow yeah. those stories were linked together, so the people actually trying 
to find the results, and especially as we think about, you know, I think a lot about open access yeah. and making our publicly funded research actually available to the public who funds it. Because I imagine it's a nightmare. <laughs> like if, uh, if my mom wanted to find some information on PubMed about some health topic, it's almost an impenetrable yeah. wall. And I wonder if some of this wouldn't benefit. Yeah, I mean, I think having um, the opportunity to kind of annotate and curate um, literature, whether it's in a preprint or, you know, published um, in a in a journal, um, is is really really valuable. And I think what this the system that you're describing of allowing work from the same authors to be kind of linked together, um, it, whether that is, I think there's a huge need for that, not just for papers, but also for data sets, for code, even supplemental information, I think sometimes kind of is neglected um, and, and not not as well organized as you could imagine. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I think certainly Crossref has uh, the little Crossmark um, logo. You can sometimes see it papers. It can be clicked to reveal whether there's been like an update to that paper. But um, yeah, I would love for that system to become even more visible and, and robust. And it's especially important for preprints too. So for example, BioArchive automatically updates their preprint the page that the preprint is hosted on with a link to the final published version when it comes out as a paper, which is great. Um, it would be also great for that to work uh, in the reverse way, so you can see the whole history of a manuscript uh, when you're reading a, a journal version. So, yeah, I think there's, a, and a lot of this is facilitated by the fact that Crossref has a, a schema for preprints now. So, effectively, preprints can be incorporated into this kind of bibliometric database, and I think that is really going to make a lot of the linkages you're describing easier. So two, two questions related to this. One, and I admit like this is very educational for me, but I, I know just tangentially I've seen on my Twitter feed through the last weeks and months, there's been a lot of conversation about what's the, how can you cite these preprints like when you're writing your grant and how does NIH, for example, view these preprints so I have that question. I wanted to ask you sort of what's the status of funding agencies and their reaction to preprints. But then also I'm really curious to know what the response of journals have been to preprints because I have my theory on what it probably is, <laughs> but I'll let you tell me. Yeah, sure. So um, I think funders have been really positive about preprints. In fact, they were, we had a meeting in 2016, um, ASAP Bio, you know, brought together these different stakeholder groups, and I think funders were especially um, willing to take some leadership on preprints, seeing the value uh, that this communication form can bring to making research available sooner. Um, and they, that has been reflected by a number of funding agencies who've changed their policies over the last year and a half or so. So we have a list of these available on the ASAP Bio website, um, and I can provide the link for that. I think that one of the biggest um, pieces of news for those of us in the U.S. is that in March of 2017, NIH released a policy encouraging the use of preprints and other interim research products and stating that they can be cited in grant applications and reports anywhere that journal articles are cited. So this, I think, is a really strong signal that these products can be functional parts of our communication system. But NIH is not alone. There's also Wellcome Trust and essentially some other UK funding agencies, uh, private funding agencies. And so really, the yeah, we're going to keep that list updated as, as much as we can. Now, journals, there have been a, a subset of journals that I think have been, you know, fine with preprints for a very long time, especially the journals that are in the fields of physics and, and deal with archive papers. So science and nature, you know, have and PNAS have basically been accepting preprints for a very long time. I think that there have also been a lot of progressive, really forward-looking journals that were really early adopters. But again, over the last couple of years, um, I think that there have been a lot of movement in in changing policies at journals. So I think the best way to look this up is to either go to um, Sherpa Romeo, which is a database that lists self-archiving policies of journals. There's also a Wikipedia page called Academic Journals by Preprint Policy, which is convenient for kind of quickly searching. The, the preprint policies are oftentimes, you know, I think the best place to look is on the journal website itself when you're thinking about submitting. But, you know, sometimes they're, they're not always in a very standard um, place. So having these kind of directories are really helpful. I would say that I think that 
that some journals are have been incredibly supportive actually so for example we have a lot of anecdotal reports of editors actually soliciting submissions to their journals from preprint servers so in the same way that editors might go to a meeting and see a, a t your talk and, and be like wow cool uh, will you submit that to our journal they can now do that but much more efficiently on a preprint server so PLOS Genetics has actually formalized this process, and they have three preprint editors whose role it is to search preprint servers wow. for potential submissions. So, so it almost fosters a little competition among the different journals to say, hey, we want that work yeah, in our journal. Exactly, right. right. Wow, that's cool. I mean, I think so much of the stress of publishing is figuring out which journal is going to be a good fit editorially? Like, what at what journal do are they? Are the editors going to be excited um, to send the paper out for review? What kind of communities is this right for? And so, preprints can make that matchmaking process even more efficient. What does Elsevier think about it? <laughs> so, I think formally Elsevier uh, allows preprints. Cell Press has been um, a bit hesitant about preprints, but. They uh, have changed their policy, I think, uh, last year, if I'm not mistaken, it to say that they are, you know, they, they do consider work on uh, that has been posted as, as preprints. In fact, um, Cell Press has launched a project called Cell Press Sneak Peek, which is not a preprint server, but um, I think has a lot of similar ideas. Mm -hmm. If you have a manuscript under review at uh, a cell journal, you can elect to have it appear in a Mendeley group. So it's not, um, it's, you have to register in order to see the papers. And I think there's various other um, things that kind of prevent it from acting like mm -hmm. a preprint server would by the NIH's yeah. definition. But but I think this speaks to, and they, they also have clarified that, that um, you, know, you can submit to a preprint server and sell press sneak peek at the same time. So I think that this really speaks to an, um, you know, acceptance of this idea of early sharing. And, and so it's been really uh, kind of great to see some these ideas propagate That's through the great. community. I just tend to assume Elsevier is the bad guy. Oh. So, so, <laughs> so you would say, oh, they're really oh, against it. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, th I think that there is, um, yeah, they, th a lot of the major publishers have actually very liberal policies because they've dealt with communities that use preprints. Well, that was great. I learned a lot. Uh, actually, I had a couple things to circle back very briefly. Sure. Just sort of your path. Yeah. How you got to be director of ASAP Bio. Yeah. So during my postdoc, I started getting really interested and kind of fascinated by questions about how to improve the practice of science. How can we make the way that we're conducting scientific research more efficient, more collaborative, and you know more inclusive? And I, I think that so many of these issues relate to the concept of how we publish. Publishing is the currency um, by which we're judged and evaluated. And so a lot of the behaviors that especially early career researchers are pressured to do, in other words, hold on to their work for a very long time to make it as impressive a story as possible, work really hard to get it into a very high-ranked journal, um, meaning that the results are kind of hidden from the scientific community for a long period of time during that review process. You know, those might be damaging not only to the, the whole practice of, of science and discovery overall, but also to the careers of individual early career researchers. So I, first of all, had a great experience posting my, my very first preprint. Um, but after that time, uh, Ron Vale, who had posted a, a study that he conducted about the time it takes and the amount of, of, of information that's going into papers today, and that the time it takes for grad students to come out with their first paper, recruited um, some colleagues uh, from a group called Rescuing Biomedical Research to help him organize a meeting about uh, preprints. So uh, that meeting essentially became ASAP Bio. Yeah, it's, it's been a, a huge honor to be involved uh, since that time. What is the, the goal and function of ASAP Bio? Yeah. So ASAP Bio, we're now a nonprofit. Uh, we try to convene discussions around how to improve scholarly communication in the life sciences. So predominantly, uh, we've been focusing on preprints and accelerating communication and discovery through not just the the uh, blind use of preprints, but really trying to make preprints used in a thoughtful way to really have the discussions about what kind of cases should preprints be used? What type of screening um, or licensing should preprints be released under? You know, how as a community can we make the best use of this form of communication?
but um, I should say that we're also, you know, thinking about publishing uh, a little bit more broadly. For example, we have a meeting coming up in February on peer review and transparency and innovative ways to conduct peer review as well. So extending this concept of transparency from the first author-created manuscript down the process a little bit as well. That's great. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right, Dan, that was my conversation with uh, Jessica. She, um, I, I want to uh, clarify this because she used this word archive a couple times in reference to uh, preprints existing in fields like physics and math. And when she says the word archive, what she means is A-R-X-I-V, archive.org, A-R-X-I-V.org, which is a preprint server for physics, math, economics, quantitative biology that started in 1991. Mm-hmm. And this has been the standard this is the norm i have a friend who is a, a physics phd and and you know when he and i talked about um publishing he was surprised that biology didn't have something similar that this is just normal that anybody could look up this research at any time and and that this is the first place they put their findings we should mention the other site for now for biology is bioarchive right and it's got to be A-R-X-I-V as well? Mm-hmm, that's okay. right. So so if you heard that word and you weren't sure how to find it online, that's because you're spelling it correctly and you need to spell it wrong. The other thing that struck me here is, I think it's really important to remember, this technology exists to do the thing that she's describing. You know, we're talking about how do we publish something and then edit it and then track the changes over time and keep track of the fact that two years ago, this document was different. This is precisely what Wikipedia is, right? And you can, you've tracked changes in your, your Word docs and your Google docs forever. In software, we have something called Git, where multiple people can work on the same thing at the same time and make sure that they don't overwrite each other. So the technology is there. And I, and I would say that technology in those instances actually makes the final product better and, and you get there more efficiently, wouldn't you say? I, I totally agree with that. And, and a lot of these platforms have the ability to make some changes and then request comments. And I think that's what she talked about, that there just aren't a lot of comments yet on these scientific, these biological preprints. You know, I wonder if one reason for that is that there are some, some open access publications now that provide the ability to, to leave comments on published works, but in practice, almost none of them have any comments at all. And on one hand, I thought, well, maybe... You know, we're not used to being able to do that, so people aren't taking advantage of it. But, but one reason I think this has come about in the first place is just the volume of information, the volume of publications that's out there digitally, whether it's post-prints or pre-prints, is so huge, right? The number of people who would actually care enough about any individual one to leave comments. I don't know. I, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but... There's just so so much out there. Yeah, I had to make this this leap in my mind. So when, when I first heard her describe it, I, I thought to myself, well, this is what Wikipedia is, right? This is a way to talk about what we know and to have it evolve. And then I kind of recognized that, that there is a difference, that Wikipedia is what we know, and papers are how we got to know it, which is a, it is a different thing. So I understand that now. But you know, I feel like I could go on, if I were interested in a paper, even though I'm outside of that field now, I should be able to comment on it um there's nothing stopping me right i don't need a login or credentials what do i need to do yeah i think you would probably just have to create an a login i guess do i have to show my phd (laughs) and take it off the wall (laughs) maybe so take a photo with it you know and i thought another potential benefit for this would be this might be a way for for individuals to share maybe negative results yeah how powerful would that be how many how many experiments did i do that showed there was no effect of this drug on these cells yeah, and with I our, never talked about it. No, it's true. And with our, our current publication setup, it's very hard to publish those findings. But it turns out, uh, and I, re- I remember this happening in a lab in graduate school, a colleague trying to repeat these results that weren't working uh, and come to find out another lab, oh, yeah, we knew that, yeah, we tried that too. But since you can't put that out there, right, how much time yeah. and resources are wasted trying to do something someone else already did, but it's not publishable? It'd be so great if your habit before starting an experiment was to go onto the preprint server and find out whether somebody had done it to to whatever effect. And maybe you don't like their method or you think that they didn't do it right. That's fine. But at least know that somebody else cared about it, tried it, and the result was negative before you get into it. Yeah. And you know what? You, you could reach out to them, right? Yeah. They might, yeah. They might be a good reference. What made you do it? And, and I think I think at the end of the day, and, and this is 
I don't know, I think this is where there's an interesting discussion to be had, whether we're talking about the preprint issue or peer review or open access. And sometimes there's this this push and pull between what's good for the scientific industry and what's good for scientific discovery. Uh, tell me tell me what you mean by scientific industry. Yeah, so, so what I mean is um, let's use open access policy as an example. So what would be best for scientific discovery to happen most efficiently would be all the information is instantly available to everyone, whether it's preprints, postprints. And that way, if you're a researcher, you can instantly see what's been done. Uh, you can gain access to it. You can make comments or you can let that guide your own experiments. Yeah, it doesn't matter where in the world or whether you've got uh, enough money to pay for this thing. No, that's right. However, so why don't we do it that way? Well, potentially we don't do it that way because there's certain money to be made or had by having subscriptions to scientific journals, I imagine. That's a, a million-dollar enterprise. So, so I guess that's one example of this, this tension between profiting off of the scientific industry versus what's actually best for scientific discovery. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So, so that tension will continue to exist, I think, for a while. Um, what do you think this does, Josh, to the speed of graduation or the speed of postdocs? I, there was a, a mention in there in the interview about um, the length of time it takes to get through peer review. So I'm going out and searching for a faculty position, but my paper is, you know, quote, almost published, or I sent it out for review or whatever. Is it different if I can say, go to this preprint file and you can see what I've done? You know, I think your mileage might vary there. I think it will depend on the person you're looking to be hired by, their point of view. So, you know, on one hand, yeah, they might go check out your preprint and evaluate that work. But a lot of times I think people are still swayed by the the name recognition of that journal that you actually published in. And before it's published, before it's gone through that peer review process, even if it's the same work, the bang for the buck that you get um, as an individual might not be the same. And even though the work does not change at all the moment it gets published versus before it was published. I don't know. That's just my thought. And I imagine there are people, especially as time goes by, um, there'll be PIs who feel differently about that. But um, because I think sometimes, you know, when people are strapped for time, the fact that that publication went through the peer review process, that's a little bit of a proxy for, Oh well, this must be a this good, is legit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if science likes it, then who am I to judge? <laughs> but I know Dan. I remember going through this process. That, you know, there was there was one paper, and it you know we put it in a couple different places, and it goes out for review, and you have to wait, and and it really was almost a year between when it was first submitted and when it finally finally was published, and and that's a long time. Yeah, and if you have to wait for that before you start applying, I, I think that's my my concern is. Maybe you, as a grad student, you get one paper or two papers or whatever it is, and that's your your threshold for being able to go look for a postdoc. I feel like it would be nice to uh, show that you're doing solid research even before it has gotten through that process. I mean, the process itself just takes time, and I and I get that. Mm-hmm. No, I, and I agree. Now, now the one issue that that Jessica did you know did acknowledge as an issue is the potential to be scooped. So, you know, you're putting this work out there before it is published. And so technically competing lab could gain additional access to exactly what you're trying to do before it's out there and try to rush it through. However, I guess... But again, that record has already been that set. That record is already did the there. work already. So, so you could argue you're, you're more protected from that, right? Because before there were preprints, another paper kind of slides in under the radar. Maybe they saw something about your work at a meeting. There's no record. I mean, who? How could you? Yeah, even if they that? found a faster publishing journal than you did, yeah, even though you did the work first, yeah. So anyway, I think it's interesting, and and regardless of what people think about it, I heard Jessica give a give a talk on this topic to some faculty at my university, and and there were people with different differing opinions on on this topic, but I think the main take home from faculty, whether they were pro or against uh, this this preprint movement is that the horse has left the barn and this is happening. It's been happening a long time in other fields. And so in biology, this is just how it's going to be moving forward. And so we have to learn to adapt to this new way of doing things. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And so um, I would love to hear from listeners who have used preprints 
um, either in the biological sciences or maybe you're in physics or math. Let us know what that process was like. How did? Why did you choose that? Was there a benefit to you? Um, have you ever gone on to one of these servers and, and left comments or, or given feedback or have you gotten feedback? And then I'd be really interested to hear what do you think would need to change either in the technology that exists or in the, the culture of science to make preprints work in the biomedical sciences the way that they've worked in other places? So those those questions are the ones I'd love to hear from our listeners on. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Dan, you have a word of the week for us? I do. The clue last time was this term once described cave-dwelling prehistoric apes, but now it refers to someone with backward or antiquated views. The answer was troglodyte. Uh, and this is a word meaning literally cave-dweller. The reason I, I came ac- across troglodyte, you're, you're familiar with troglodytes? I am. Aren't those, those little uh, those little bug-like? <laughs> They're trilobites. <laughs> those are trilobites. Totally different thing. Troglodytes. Uh, they were basically, it's a, a word for cavemen or cave people or whatever. But the reason I came to this one is because it was related to our word last week, trout. The, the word for cave traced all the way back comes from uh, a word meaning mouse hole. <laughs> which, sorry, what? Yeah, mouse hole. Okay. Something that a mouse chews. And, and that comes from trojine, which is to non-nibble or munch. And that's where trout came from. So, th- so these two words came together, although they're, uh, they seem totally different. They have a common ancestor. I thought it was kind of fun. Cave uh, trout. Cave trout. So the, is that a thing? That might exist. Maybe. Okay. Uh, did we have a winner this week? We did. Peter from the University of Montana was our winner. All right. Thanks, Peter. And I will give you this week's uh, puzzle clue. And this is Thanksgiving themed. Top this humble root with marshmallows and it is fit to serve a child of God. Read it one more time. If you top this humble root with marshmallows, it's fit to serve a child of God. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. In this case, it is the genus of this root. Uh, Once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com and we'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. I don't know the genus name, but I hope to eat some of this root. Okay, well, well, I look forward to that as well. All right, Dan, this has been a great show. Uh, if you have a question or a topic idea, we would love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com or you can send us a tweet at hellophd or leave us a message on our Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We really love the feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it might. You don't know. It we might. just don't know. It might. Yeah, yeah. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We'd appreciate the beer money. All right, Dan, time to get back to basting. All right, we'll we'll get to it. Josh, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving, and to all of our uh, American listeners, happy Thanksgiving to you as well. Take some time off. Please get out of the lab. Yeah, absolutely, and we are certainly thankful to all of you who take the time to listen to our show. We appreciate it. We'll see you next time.